Welcome to this special winter solstice edition of the Woman Who Rubs the Mountain podcast, where we gather for conversations and stories of ecological embodiment. I'm your host and guide, Kendra Ward. So here in the Northern Hemisphere, fast approaching the shortest day and the longest night, how are you rubbing on the body of the earth in this season? And how is the earth brushing back against you? How are you seeking an intimacy, a love affair with the land and beings where you live? So let us come together in creative, strange, disruptive ways of relating beyond the human-centric limitations of our current dreaming. By sharing experiences of embodied ecology, our reality shifts, our core truths sharpen, and space is made for a new, old, earth-honoring culture to reemerge. So I'm so grateful to bask in the deepening primordial darkness with Jen Hudzik today. Jen is a certified ancestral lineage repair practitioner, a death doula, educator, ritualist, and fire walk instructor. As an animist, she has spent decades integrating earth-honoring practices with her former Catholic upbringing while reviving the traditions of her European ancestors. She holds relationality at the heart of her practice and passionately supports others to reclaim their intuitive capacities, engage with their ancestors, find peace with mortality, and prepare for the threshold of death. She tends traditional Abenaki land in New Hampshire and offers online private sessions, rituals, education, and group circles. So thank you so much for being with me here today, Jen. It's truly a treat. Thank you so much for having me, Kendra. Really excited to be here. And I know just to give everyone a, a sense of um, space, we're Jen and I are both in the middle of a winter storm and the snow is just lightly coming down and it, it truly is feeling um, like we are, you know, deepening into that, that yin space. So it's very appropriate. So I thought before we move into some questions that you and I and our listeners might just pause, take a breath, and tune into the vegetative expression of the land where we live. Imagine taking a hand and gently, carefully placing your palm on the earth. What might you notice as you listen in this way with the hand, with your hand and the skin of your palm, with all of your senses. And I'm noticing the cold, contractive nature of the soil, the mineral smell of rock and ice, that the boulders seem to be sleeping with one eye open. And right now with the snow coming down like prayers, these wet, heavy flakes that seem just totally immune to gravity. 
They're taking all the time in the world. It feels like there's this essentializing, this truth-telling in the bodies of the trees as I look outside. The beech trees seem even more smooth. The oaks even more hard-headed as they cling tightly to their shriveled copper leaves. The maples even more wrinkled and primal. So more than anything, I sense this quality of yin hibernation and gestation. The waiting of a regenerative life force. And even though I can't see them, I sense the hibernating frogs resting still on the bottom of the vernal pool. The heavy breath of sleeping foxes escaping stolen dens and the tulip bulbs buried deep within the folds of the earth, pregnant and full with springtime imaginings. Now take that same hand that you placed on the earth and place it on your chest, your heart. What is the vegetative expression here in your body at this moment? What does your animal body know of this time of year? And I sense the pores of my skin a little less open. I'm sensing the energies in my center, gathering, condensing, quieting. I sense my body wanting to take the path of least resistance less efforting, the way a hibernating animal does not stir, but instead trusts fully in being held by the world. So what else are you noticing in your body right now? How does it feel different than we're, when we're at that full height of the summer? And then I'm wondering where these two come together, your body and the body of the land, in the conjunctive rapture, in the fluid interdependence. So keep that one hand on your heart and in your mind's eye, placing your other hand back on the body of the land. What kind of intimacy arises in the similarities? Who is rising to meet who? What kind of fresh interplay exists here between our bodies and the body of the earth? When we reach out to touch the wet bark of a tree, for example, and we feel the bark also pressing toward us, rising to meet us, bodies simultaneously moving, crusting in a fluid interface of human and tree skin. And really we can explore these interfaces everywhere. The air as it meets the tender tissue of our lungs, the sun's warm radiant hands when it touches our faces, or with every step, 
black dirt universes pressing up to meet us at exactly the very moment our feet touch down. So I hope you take these explorations with you. And having greeted the land around us, having greeted our bodies, let's nestle in, let's get cozy with this delicious primordial yin, strengthening our spiritual storehouses with hearty questions, allowing the dark gestation of the underworld to feed our expression and future blossoming in the above world. So Jen, I am wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about the place where you live, where you rub on or press into or find intimacy with. Yeah, thank you so much, Kendra, for that introduction and your beautiful opening. Um, So I live in New Hampshire, which is for your international listeners on the East Coast of the United States. And this land is the unceded indigenous territory of the Abenaki Nation. Um, I moved to this particular piece of land 15 years ago with my partner, and we hand built our home here. So I've had quite a process with this place from the very beginning. Building intimacy with the land and place is really a journey that mirrors how we also build relationships with other humans, animals, plants, our unseen allies, and ourselves. So for me, my relationship here has been an evolutionary process that first began with asking permission to be present. Am I welcome here? That was the first question I asked to establish rapport with the territorial ancestors and the spirits of this place. And once I felt welcomed, I then began the process of relationship building. I introduced my ancestors to the land by placing some soil that I had collected years ago from my grandparents' graves on the land. I dialogued with the forces here about creating outdoor shrines and any offerings I could make. I offered my moon blood, children's placentas, my tears, my joy to the land. So engaging in reciprocity is really the most fundamental practice to enriching any relationship. And this has really been the cornerstone of how I have found intimacy with where I live. I receive so much from this place and um, my gratitude in the form of offerings and gifts back have allowed us to have a deeply symbiotic relationship. In a, in a wider regional context, I've also built intimate relationships in much the same way. I bring my whole self to the lakes and the streams, my emotionality, my truth, my rawness. Likewise, I have so much gratitude to the local mountain in our region as well. In the um, tarot tradition from South America, this mountain would be considered my local Apu. That's the name for the mountain. 
And so spending time with this ancient one in the form of listening has been really deeply nourishing. I ask it, what is your story? Tell me about you. And then I listen. Intimacy also involves listening. And as someone who grew up in a Western anthropocentric, human-centered culture, um, it has been a process of unwinding the conditioning of placing myself at the center of interactions with my needs or wants, and rather approaching the land with an intent to listen. Mm, beautiful. I'm just so curious. I mean, if we think about how the places and homes where most people live and how there was never that check-in, there was never that ask. And I know it's impossible for you to know what it might've felt like otherwise. Um, but what sense do you have of, I mean, what a difference that makes. And most people are in that process of trying to kind of undo what's happened. Like maybe they live in a home and they realize, oh, I need to ask, or I need to, you know, um, there are these steps that I'm taking offerings or other things to build relationship, but not that many people are um, in a situation where they started with the asking. They started with tuning into consent and permission. And so what a, what a difference that must've made. It does. It, 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 um, it really changed the dynamic mm -hmm. that I had with the land from the very beginning and, um, you know, it, this is something that I learned in my older years. So um, I would say that it's never too late to ask for permission or consent mm -hmm. in whatever situation, if it's never occurred to somebody or it's a whole new concept, then to begin to integrate that concept now and to start to build that relationship and um, in, an, in, a, in a really intentional way. Um, and I think many, many of us have already been building relationships, maybe not aware of it in a way that's very clear. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's never too late. It's never too late to open up a very consensual permission-based and also um, intentional relationship with where we live and reside. True. It is never too late. There's always that space to begin. Always. Yeah. Well, the, the name of your work, your body of work is called Ancient Pathways. And immediately when I, when I heard these two words together, um, it just really strongly conjured for me images of old moss covered boulders and the dreaming of giant tortoises and the, the timeless heartbeats of stars. So there's just this sense of a spiritual maturity, a growing up that's happening here, an eldership that I feel like we really desperately need on this planet. So I was hoping that you might speak to how you decided on this name, Ancient Pathways, and what it really means to you. Yeah, thank you. What a lovely question. I, I really appreciate this question so much. Um, I have to laugh because when I think back to where I was when the name came to me, 
I wish I could tell you I had climbed up a mountain <laughs> and I was having an epiphany, but honestly, I was just driving alone in my car. Um, <laughs> at the time, I had three younger children at home and finding a moment of silence was a rare commodity. So anyways, at that moment, um, it came to me that I was asking the wider web for some insight around my body of work and everything I had learned and experienced with my spiritual unfolding up until that point, it all had the same energy about it. It was both familiar and it was new at the same time. It was beyond space and time, and yet it felt completely present. So my whole life felt like a story that I was remembering. And that story lived deep in my bones. So bringing the story forward and living into my path was an act of reclaiming something that was ancient. And our connection with the ancient isn't linear. It's not a one-way street. When we think of pathways, we don't just travel down a pathway from point A to point B. Pathways um, can lead us in a variety of directions through all types of terrain. And sometimes we land back to where we started. So for me and the work that I do, I offer various ways that engage our ancient and our timeless knowing, how we tend to our ancestors, how we care for the dead, how we engage with the elements, how we create ritual, and use our intuitive capacities. So it is not that we don't know how to do these things. We just need to trigger our ancient memory. And I feel blessed to be a catalyst for this. I love that, that sense of remembering, like you're not learning something new, but it's in, it's some, there's some, deep familiarity of sorts that's being brought to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, you know, the easiest example for me is like when we, when we pick up a book and we're reading the book and what we're reading on those pages is giving us those aha moments. And I think of it as like, yeah, we're learning, but we're also unlearning and remembering at the same time. Mm. And, um, and that's just a, you know, a simple, more practical example of that remembering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, one of the things that, that really drew me to you was your, is your background, um, your experience and training, both as a midwifery slash birth doula, and also your current work in the world as a death doula. So I was hoping that you might Tell us a little bit more about that process. What drew you to becoming a death doula? Maybe you could talk about that a little bit more since perhaps many people might not even know what that means. Um, and I was hoping that you might storytell a little or speak to your experience of holding space for humans through this full cycling of life. Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, death doula also interchangeable terms is uh, an end-of-life doula. 
And so um, these are more formal terms that have been given to a role that, you know, men and women have been doing since the beginning of time, mm-hmm. you know, holding space for the initiation or the final rite of passage into death. Um, and so as a death doula, holding space for a dying person and their family, but also I understand that the death doula is also one that um, it, it doesn't just start with death. It can start way before the dying process even happens and starting to um, hold space and support people to really explore their mortality and to make practical plans and to like really dream themselves into this place of transitioning and crossing the threshold and what they want that to look like. So what drew me to be a death doula is it it, it actually brings me back to my childhood when I think about that. Um, I think for many of us, there's an intrinsic weaving of fascination with fear around death. And that's present from the moment we become conscious of life. And so for me, I remember my consciousness beginning to wake up sometime around my like later elementary school years, I was already aware of the world around me. But what really began to rattle my little being awake was the realization of the impermanence of life. So I grew up in a small town where I would often ride my bike to the town cemetery. And there wasn't a lot going on where I lived. So, you know, the cemetery is where it was at for me. And um, I remember reading all the names on the headstones and admiring the unique carvings on them. And after many trips, I had figured out who was the youngest to have died Mm. and who was the oldest. And some of these gravestones are very, very old, you know, 17, 1800s. But it occurred to me that in this cemetery, there were babies and there were children that were buried there and that they too could die. And that had a really profound effect on me. And without a historical context in which to place their deaths, malnourishment, disease, plagues, etc., I realized that if their lives could end at those young ages, so could mine. And that was really the beginning of my draw into the realm of death. But there was no culture to support my curiosity. So death was and is something that is so stigmatized in our culture. And I grew up with the mainstream notion that if I expressed an interest in death, that it would mean I was either, I would either draw death to me and die prematurely, or that I could be potentially viewed as suicidal. Mm. And that was what that meant at that time. So that interest took a backseat inside of me until I was an adult. And I found myself in a ceremony where I actually dug my own grave and I lie in it. And that was a really intense somatic experience. And it actually triggered the calling that had been dormant inside of me. So all of this coupled with 
the spectrum of experiences that I had had of people close to me dying in a myriad of ways, from sudden death to traumatic death to peaceful crossings. And then, of course, the global collective death from COVID that really sealed my fate as death doula. And as far as my experience holding the full spectrum of birth and death and everything in between, um, I can say that I'm so grateful for the archetype of witness and embodying the witness archetype. It doesn't just mean that I passively hold space. It means that I am continuously challenged to hold a space where I come up against myself and I have to be deeply present and decide when to talk and when to listen, when to act and when to be still, when to advocate and when to support others to advocate for themselves. So it's a tenuous dance and it consistently stimulates growth edges in me that push me to evolve and learn and grow. And I'll just say that holding containers for the full cycling of life is just magnificent. I'm, I remember driving away from the first birth I attended in my early 20s. And although I was exhausted and quite in a daze from sleeplessness, um, in those early morning hours, I remember the sun was rising, sky was changing colors, and in Seattle, where I was living, the city was completely asleep and everything was still. And in that stillness, a human was born. And I thought if every person alive was able to witness birth, the world would be a different place. We might just end up kinder and more tolerant. And really the same is true for death. It's almost the exact same journey. We may think of birth as an opening or a beginning and death as a closing or an ending, but truly these initiations embody both beginnings and endings, all within the great moment that we call life. So there's one other piece I'd like to share if I could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's really important to name that there are elemental aspects to birth and death and just to really like honor these elements in these processes. So we all know we're all elemental beings and we reflect the larger world around us. In our bodies and our beings, we're composed of fire, water, earth, air, and various other elements, um, depending on which traditions you subscribe to. The origins of our life cycle begins with the cosmology of the elements. And so when we observe the onset of human life, we see from the ethers, the fire of conception produces earth mm -hmm. in the form of a physical body, a baby that is held within the arms of embryonic water until the first breath of air is taken. And with death, our earthly bodies begin to decline. The element of water asks us to reflect upon our life. 
and eventually we go through the gate of fire where we may burn off those things that need to be combusted in order for us to take our last breath and return back to the ethers. And so we cycle back through the elements just as everything around us does. So witnessing the cycle of life through this elemental lens gives me as somebody who holds space for these events something to really lean into. It's like, oh yeah, this birthing mama is going into transition, transition phase of birth. All the signs are beginning to appear. This is the element of fire and fire needs grounded presence to help keep things steady. And it's the same with people who become restless or irritated during death, knowing that they're moving through an elemental phase within the larger rite of passage that they're going through really helps me to support where they are in birth and death and everywhere in between. Wow. What a, what a awesome, beautiful way of, you know, understanding both of those, um, the, the interweavings of the beginnings and the endings and all of it woven together. I, I'm imagining that must truly be moments where you're like, wow, there is fire right there in front of my eyes, you know, just with that that level of presence. So yeah. 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 And just to being yeah. able to to feel into like the archaic nature of the elements, you know, that brings us to something so much bigger. It does. It does. And it's helpful to have that broader, wider context because mm -hmm. we can get so microscopic with what's happening right in front of us that to really lean into, you know, the cosmic interplay of the elements, like, wow, we can just kind of take a breath and lean back and just witness what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that it's, it's just all unfolding without our, you know, pushing to make it happen in some way or that it just is, um, yeah, moving through its own, in its own way. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Well, I, I wanted to tune in a little bit more to, um, this sense of threshold right now that we're in. Um, it's interesting in my own experience, I feel like in the past, the winter solstice is oftentimes, um, this, like celebration of the light, like we're really fixated on the light coming through again. And what I found happening within is um, a longing to sort of deepen into the darkness and not try and just bypass straight to like the light returning, um, you know, instead feeling into the, the threshold of this time period when the, the dark presses in and reminds us to sort of loosen into the uncertainties to sink into this dark void from which all life springs. And if we allow for it, it feels like it can be this opportunity to strengthen our deepest reserves. Um, this moment of fertile reflection. And it, it, you know, one of the services that you offer as a death doula are legacy projects and life reviews. So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about your experience in these offerings and 
what we might all learn from this sort of radical introspection. Yeah. Yeah. I love this phrase, fertile reflection, um, because it really captures the core, the very core of what legacy projects and life reviews truly embody. Mm. Um, being in the position to hold a container for someone who is willing to engage in a reflective process around the meaning of their life is such an incredible honor. I do, I do want to mention too that anyone at any time can do a life review or a legacy project. So for people who are in a position to have time and health on their side, legacy work and life review can really foster um, a healthier relationship with their mortality. And so when we ponder where we've been in life and hold our experiences within the context of death, we truly begin to live differently. Um, and so for those whom death may be pending, something similar and yet different happens. So what I've witnessed is that in these processes also holds the potential for a very deep peace to set in. The soul has an opportunity to settle because a part of its essence has been harnessed to live forth in the physical. So whether it's a book of reflections or stories, um, making a recipe book, making a recording of songs or, um, you know, whatever <clears throat> that's specific to that, you know, um, the wishes of that person, whatever it is, we've encapsulated a part of someone's essence in their legacy project. And this intentionality really can bring us and our loved ones a sigh of relief. And engaging in the radical introspection, whether it's a project that's created or not, it, it, it invites us into a space within ourselves where we ask ourselves, you know, what is or what was the meaning of my life? And, <clears throat> excuse me, so many of us search for meaning our whole lives. And when we make the time to prioritize this question, what we can learn can be really surprising. And I find that for many people, there is a realization that this big thing called meaning that we strive towards defining for ourselves has actually always been present in the nuances of our daily life. What we learn is that we can take a deep breath and relax. The pressure that we put on ourselves to live a meaningful life has already been achieved in a myriad of ways. It just takes some stillness prompting and that radical introspection for us to realize it. Hmm. I'm just getting the, the sense of how we don't need to wait. Um, you know, the, the 
unbelievable opportunities of reflection ongoingly, preferably while we're, you know, in a um, healthy place. It seems like that so much. Um, it's sort of like, you know, why wait till you're sick to then get care in some way? Um, same, same piece here. But then it also makes me wonder, you know, what stands in our, what blocks us or stands in our way in terms of taking the step to reflect um, on our lives this deeply. And I'm wondering what your sense of the most common blockages or hesitancies that people have? Do you feel like it's feeling into the intensity of those emotions that that stand in the way? Or what do you find? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is that absolutely um, bringing up memories, experiences mm -hmm. that can potentially hold trauma. Yeah is definitely something that um that repels people and rightly so in in some cases um i think that culturally our um our discomfort with death allows this reflection to fall to the bottom of our priority list mm -hmm. And it's something that we can put off because we're alive today. We can put it off till tomorrow and we can put it off and we can put it off. And so when we bring death into our life in a way that, um, in a way that we learn to befriend it and it becomes something that is a regular thought or consideration for us then it becomes less of this huge mountain for us to manage. It becomes more reasonable. And when we hold this uh, almost like a mantra of today is the last day I could possibly live. How do I want to live this day? When we hold that in our daily consciousness, suddenly we realize that any day could be our last day. And to make the time for this reflection, but even it doesn't have to be like we go into a retreat for a whole week and we reflect on death, you know? Mm -hmm. It can be literally a minute, two, three, five a day. And like really sink into this moment of reflection where we can start to capture those pieces of our life that are good and beautiful and the lessons that we learned and the hardships. And we can begin to bring those into some type of uh, a book or a project, a recording, a piece of art. Then, like I had said before, it's like, wow, what a service we've just done to ourselves to really capture a piece of our essence that we can then gift out to either our descendants, a nonprofit, or an organization or a cause that means something to us. And so it's really this, um, it's really just like it becomes a cosmic gift mm. when we actually can make that time to reflect. Cosmic gift. 
Well, and I just get the sense of how skilled you are in being able to um, make it less scary. Like that there are these entry points that we can find that are beautiful um, and going there instead. So absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Those gentle entry points. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautifully said. Hmm. Well, one, one of my, um, one of the places that I really come from in terms of this nature-based value system of ancient Chinese philosophy is this reverence for yin matter, the earth, the body. And in her book, Five Spirits, Laurie Deschar says, quote, only through our willingness to immerse ourselves in the cauldron of matter, to surrender to the powerful instinctual energies of the mysterious feminine, can we experience healing that is transformational, that results in ways of being more effectively, more authentically, and more gracefully who we truly are? So I'm wondering about your sense or interpretation of the mysterious feminine and how she, or we might even think of mysterious feminine as as even beyond gender, um, how the mysterious feminine might show up in your work. Yeah, that's a fantastic quote and such a juicy question. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So my sense of the mysterious feminine and how it shows up in my work. It's like, that's so good. Um, my relationship and I'll reference her as her mm-hmm. also acknowledging that beyond gender in this mysterious feminine is also true. My relationship with her is one that leans into those primordial nameless moments of raw untethered and purely instinctual action or knowing. So I have to say that those moments I just described are so sacred that they don't just happen all the time. And sure, I live in the paradigm of the mysterious feminine and yet to harness this immense energy and to channel it is something that can be really overwhelming. Um, So I really respect this power and honor those experiences in my past and in my future where she fully embraces me, fully engulfs me. Um, And so what's been a real gift to us in the development of our collective consciousness is distinguishing aspects of her, such as the crone, the hag, the wise woman. And so teasing out those qualities from the cauldron of matter that you referenced so beautifully, it gives us archetypes that we can more easily work with. So we have this large governing, cosmic, feminine, super powerful energy that comes through different times in our life. But on a more daily basis, there is the um, opportunity for us to engage with, with the archetypes. And so it's with these archetypal energies that I work with in my practice. So sometimes I can call in specific goddesses that I have established relationships with. Sometimes I feel there's a familiar presence that's assisting me. So for example, 
um, my grandmothers were very connected to the Catholic version of Mother Mary. And I was raised Catholic and have been through the fire, finding peace with all that institutionalized religion brings. Um, but I've really come full circle with the immense mystery that Mary represents. And when I realized that my grandmothers had a spiritual life that was channeled through Mary, I understood that the mysterious feminine is always with us in some nuanced way. Mm. And that in my case, there is this intergenerational peace that has shown up for me in my work. And so the mysterious feminine that embodies the birth-death paradigm, it's always like a background program that's running. And it's a joy when different aspects of her emerge and they seem to emerge exactly when they're needed and when the energy of a situation in a birth or death or a rite of passage matches that magic and that medicine that that archetype holds. And so there becomes this merging with this feminine aspect and what is being presented right in front of us, right in front of me. Um, so, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It is um, just letting it arise in its own time. You know, um, there, there is no, it just unfolds organically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, oftentimes it does. And then there is, you know, also the potential for that intentionality, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, we all live in it. It's, it is, it's like this, this, uh, Hard, hardwired program, I think, that we dip in and out of. Mm -hmm. Well, just returning to the sense of yin hibernation, I find that in this time of year, my body really longs for the bog, the rich soil, this exploration of the dark underworld, um, which is truly this womb of gestation for the above world. And I know that this word underworld can is interpreted in, in so many different ways, but one of the simplest that comes to mind for me is the underworld of the actual physical earth, the very ancient ancestral memory of fungi and how this vast collective intelligence or larger community, um, these fungal families taught the very earliest plants how to root and link up and communicate in the very beginnings of resilience ecology. So really, you know, I, be, I in this time of year, I really feel this deep connection and curiosity with that, the physical underworld of things. While also, you know, many cultures around the world believe that the earth holds ancestral memory and that the earth is this repository of our ancestors' dreams. So as an ancestral healing practitioner, I'd love to hear more about um, any and all of this, particularly in this sort of interweaving of the themes of resilience ecology and ancestral memory. And I know that this is like a big question that sort of stretches us to the outer realms, but just feel free to, <laughs> to explore in any ways. <laughs> Great. 
<laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It is a big one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's so much here to tease out and weave together at the same time. Um, I mean, the earth just holds so much. And the earth is this complex community of carnate beings, incarnate beings, and beings that are in, in full, fully in transition. Um, I think of everything all over the natural world right now that's in the process of decomposing, regenerating, and also being imbued with the forces of nature and all that the natural world holds. And it's, it's just amazing. And um, our ancestors of blood and bone are a part of this process. And physically, our ancestors have decomposed into the soil of the earth. But on a soul essence level, it makes me think of um, the multi-soul belief system of some cultures. So this system that I'm referencing embraces the idea that there's not just one soul, that there are actually many parts of our soul. And one of which, one of these parts, um, is an ancestral soul piece. And upon death, this soul piece might go back to the larger pool of ancestral consciousness, and it may go live within the landscapes and in the environments around us, or both. And with the latter case, what is really lands with us when we become present to a geographical area where we sense the legacy of someone's people. And those legacies are everywhere, layers upon layers upon layers of ancestral imprints. And this can bring so much up. It can bring up so much for us. Um, sensing the soul imprint in the land of people who were possible victims of genocide, slavery, or imperialism. There's also legacies of rebellion and earth stewardship and celebration. And so the earth holds all of this for people across the world. And in this way, we're connected within a network of memory of our collective humanity. And so the other piece I wanted to mention here is a reminder of how incredibly resilient our ancestors were. They went through unbelievable trials throughout the course of history. I mean, it's just amazing that any of us are here when you consider famines and war and disease and brutal climates and being at the bottom of some food chains. So the earth reflects the same resiliency over the course of billions of years. The chemical composition of our oceans have changed. The globe was covered up to two miles thick in ice. Species of plants and animals evolved and became extinct. And so the ability of our planet to adapt, just like our ancestors, is the story of our collective survival. So when we engage with a broader system of ancestors, meaning the ancestors that are also plants and animals and landscapes. We foster our ability to um, expand ourselves into heightened relationality. 
we get to experience a great remembering of how we can live with reciprocity. We can learn to reach out like those mycelium mm. and strengthen the community around us. How we're more resilient together than separate. This is the stuff of ancestral memory and it lives in and all around us. And so just like the ecosystems are dependent upon each other, our ancestors were also dependent upon each other for survival. And it's just been this collective, um, this collective journey through the origins of time. Hmm. Beautiful. You really did find a way to bring it all together. <laughs> I love that. Would love for you to just deepen us into this presence with the with the winter solstice and guide us in a little ritual here. Yeah, I would be honored to do that. Thank you so much. Yeah, so we'll we'll do a brief drop-in, a guided meditation. And so I would invite your listeners, if they're in a place where they can do so, to just get comfortable physically, make sure their physical bodies are supported. And um, if it feels comfortable to close your eyes, go ahead and do so. And always it's so good just to start by taking a deep breath into your lungs, inviting this incredible element of air into every space, every pore of your body, allowing both an invigoration and a sense of stillness to interplay within the cells and the structures of your physical body. And you're going to bring your awareness to the crown of your head, to the very top of your scalp. And from this place, just noticing any thoughts, or reflections that you're having and just gently put those thoughts and reflections aside for a moment just allowing your mental house to slow down to really embody this winter slumber as you begin to bring your awareness down through your face and the back of your neck, just honoring your face, all the smiles, all the laughter, all the tears that have run down these cheeks. As you descend your awareness down and out across your shoulders, spiraling your awareness all the way down your arms, all the way down to your fingertips. As you thank these hands for all of their hard work, all that they've created, all the touch they've provided. 
And now bringing your awareness back up into your chest so that you can really access with your awareness, your heart space, your lungs, the back of your spine, thanking your heart for being this inner GPS that guides you along your path. And now dropping your awareness down into your abdomen, noticing this beautiful community of organs that works together for good health and alignment. And then bringing your awareness further down your spine into your core, into your pelvis. Honoring and thanking the seat of creativity in all of us. And then again, spiraling your awareness down your legs, through your knees, down through your ankles, all the way to the tips of your toes, where we thank these feet for every step they've taken to bring us to this point in our life. And now I invite you to call in whatever works for you in terms of universal love or energy, or if you have any helping guides or a special animal or deity that you have a trusted connection with. Just take a moment and invite them to join you in the space. And now you're going to ask this being to clear your body of any tension you're holding, of any emotional density that is weighing on you, or any mental distraction that could be in the way of deepening into your awareness. So ask your ally to provide that clearing. And now you're going to ask this ally or universal energy to encircle you, to wrap you up in a layer of protective energy so that your own personal power is contained and secure. And now from this place of being grounded, centered, and protected, you're going to imagine feel, or sense yourself 
at the entrance of a tunnel that takes you into the earth. And as you enter the tunnel, you have a sense of safety and warmth. There is a rich earth smell that enters into your nose. And you take a moment to orient yourself to this new dark environment. And as your eyes and your body and your senses adjust to the darkness, you notice that there's a warm glow farther down the tunnel. And this glow feels inviting and welcoming. So you begin to move towards it. And as you continue down this path, you may notice the roots of trees intertwining with one another. You might notice a buzzing network of microbes and the glow of mycelia weaving together, almost like a tapestry of fine silk thread. And as you draw closer and closer to this warm glow, you may notice the beauty of sparkling crystals protruding from the walls around you. And maybe the feeling of moss beneath your feet. You have a sense of this tunnel being more than just a hole in the ground. It is a pathway rich with life and metaphor. And as you reach the perimeter of this glow of this light, you have a familiar feeling, something you quite can't, you can't quite name. And yet there's a sense of the eternal. And you realize that you're in the presence of an energy field that is ancestral. It is as old as time and it is your origin. This energy is ancient and benevolent and wise. So just be with this energy for a few moments here. And now there's a sense that this ancestral energy has something it wants to share with you. 
just be open to receive what this gift is. And as you start to receive or continue to receive this sacred gift, the message is that you bring this gift out into the light. And so before you turn to leave this ancient ancestral energy, you take a moment to offer gratitude and also, if there's anything else that is on your heart that you would like to communicate, then take a few moments to do so now. And now as you begin your journey back towards the entrance of the tunnel, you can still feel the warmth of your ancient, kind, and wise people at your back. And you feel held and seen and supported. And when you reach the exit of the tunnel, the sun shines on your face as you emerge from the darkness. You have a gift to bring to the world. You have the backing of your ancient ones and you feel balanced and aligned. And now you're slowly going to bring your awareness back to where you are by opening your eyes. Mm. Thank you so much for that, that beautiful journey. I hope everyone feels buoyed <laughs> in love and support, filled up with mm. all of that. Yeah. Thank mm. you. Well, just in gathering all the threads here, I hope that we might just hear a little bit more about some of your offerings, Jen, and anything else that you have coming up in the future here. Yeah, thank you so much for asking, Kendra. 
Um, so I do run a small group, three cycles of the year called the Hive Collective. And the Hive engages the ancestral lineage repair process in a small group setting. And this is really just such a juicy opportunity for people to witness and support each other as they each connect with their own ancestors to catalyze healing. So that's one, one offering that I have. Um, I also offer free monthly death cafes, which is an open circle forum for people to come together and just to talk about death and dying in a non-dogmatic, non-judgmental environment. So I offer these free circles. Um, I'm also working on a death education series that will traverse different topics such as green burial, home funerals, and um, other topics related to end of life. I have a project that I'm working on called the Womb to Tomb Project, um, which is really uh, a dive into our own mortality and life review process from birth all the way up to wherever we are in our lives at this time. And um, yeah, finally, I'm, I'm always offering free talks and sliding scale online classes so that my work can be financially accessible to everyone. Um, and all of these take place online. I also offer a few um, in-person rituals throughout the year that include uh, firewalks and um, death and grief rituals. So a full, full spectrum of things that I'm passionate about. Beautiful. That's, there's a lot there. Yes, there is a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so all of these things can be found um, on my website, which is jenhudzik.com. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And I'll have all of your information on the show notes as well so right. that folks can find you. So, yeah. well, thank you so much for sharing yourself so beautifully and generously and just for all of the work, this incredibly needed work in the world. Um, I hope that it inspires everyone to mm, take this time to just feel into their lives a little bit more deeply. The sort of, I feel like we're we're hopefully able to use this time to enter the the caves of soul questions yeah. in this in this winter dreaming time. So yeah. Thank you, Jen. Beautiful. Thank you so much for hosting, Kendra. This has really been such a fantastic experience. So yeah, blessings to you. Happy solstice and to Thank your you. listeners as well. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and for spending this time with us as we continue to make space for bountiful amounts of presence and deepening, as we find new ways of relating and being in kinship, and as we continue to sink into our bodies and enmesh ourselves entirely within this miraculous earth home. Much, much solstice joy to you all. Bye for now. <laughs>